Hello and welcome to Atlantic Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. The Atlantic Fellowship Programme works with a diverse community of leaders around the world with a common commitment to fairer, healthier, more inclusive societies. Through its seven programmes focused on equity and healthcare, socio-economic equity and racial equity, the Atlantic Fellowships offer those leaders an opportunity to gain new perspectives and new colleagues, while strengthening their confidence in their work for change. In each podcast, I'll be speaking to an Atlantic Fellow about their work and ambitions for a more just world. For this series of podcasts, I travelled to Melbourne to meet up with some of the first Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity. Their programme is based at the University of Melbourne. Today I'm joined by Nicole Jenkins, an Atlantic Fellow for Social Equity. Nicole is a Gamilaroi woman from Moree in northwest New South Wales. I'm a proud Aboriginal woman. I grew up surrounded by my Aboriginal family and it's the essence of who I am. comes out in everything I do, I guess. How many different tribes are there? There's over 200 and something and numerous different languages. Some say there's around 230. I don't know that we've really landed on how many, but yes, hundreds. So it's a bit like Europe shoved into Australia. For people who are listening who are not at all familiar with the situation for Aboriginal and Indigenous people in Australia, Torres Strait Islanders, for example, can you give us an overview of what it's like in the workplace, generally speaking, for these people, for your people? Yeah, there are Aboriginal employment strategies that the government encourages organisations to develop. Reconciliation Australia is an organisation that's funded through the government and they help organisations develop reconciliation action plans, what we call a RAP in short. And within the wraps, there's an employment section. And so more often than not, organisations will say they want to increase the number of Aboriginal staff that work there. My background's HR. I studied business HR and I've worked for many big and small organisations. And increasingly, I was seeing that organisations are more interested in just getting Aboriginal people through. I was working in an organisation where there were really highly skilled Aboriginal staff. Some had formal education, tertiary education, a lot didn't. And when it came to decision-making in the organisation, even though they held quite high roles in the organisation, they were never, ever used for their skill base in making those decisions. It tended to go to the non-Aboriginal senior staff to make decisions in regards to Aboriginal people. It can be quite frustrating when you know you have the capacity and the capability, but for some reason you're overlooked or your opinion isn't considered as valued as others. And that's the case with gender. We know that male's voice is heard more than female voices. It's no different, but it's actually identifying that it is an issue. And if you're going to employ Aboriginal people, then you really need to take the time to listen. There'd be no Indigenous community around the world that wouldn't say that it's Indigenous people that have the answers to their own struggles. What is it like working in the HR space? Do people make assumptions about you because you're Aboriginal? I think that's interesting because the job that I'm currently in, which is centre manager at the Northern Rivers Community Legal Centre, when I tell people that I'm managing the organisation, they assume and often ask if it's an Aboriginal legal service. And it's not and they're a little bit surprised. And that in turn raises the question about inclusivity and integration of the Aboriginal community, the Torres Strait Islander community with the wider, mainly white population. Yeah. Key to my project around acknowledging Aboriginal skills and knowledge is that Aboriginal people have skills and knowledge which are important across all organisations, not just in Aboriginal-led or run organisations. And so the skills that I possess are just as relevant in a non-Aboriginal legal centre as it is an Aboriginal legal centre. 
part of my project is defining that, which is a challenge, but I will try and give you an idea in the health industry. People might come present sick and an Aboriginal person might just be sick because they're not on country or they haven't lived on country for many years. Our culture is connected to the land. We're part of the land. We come from Mother Nature and that's certainly where I get my health and well-being from. So yes, when you're away from country, if you're not living where you were born, you can feel sick. You'll hear Aboriginal people say all the time, I just need to go back on country. And so when people have been working off country and things are getting a bit tough, they'll just go home, be on country, sit, replenish and go again. So this causes a lot of problems internally, mentally sometimes for people. Absolutely. It's a trauma. Yeah. Another example as to why I thought this project was essential is there was a community just off Darwin and they were looking for someone to head up the service being run there. You're typically dealing with people that are experiencing homelessness and they might be domestic violence or some drug and alcohol abuse and those kind of things. And so this service was doing health strategies, healthy living, healthy being. Traditionally, it had been a non-Aboriginal person running that service, but it was all Aboriginal staff. And there was this real focus on formal qualifications. Women in communities deal with domestic violence either indirectly or directly. They would have had indirect or direct experience with homelessness, all those disadvantages and struggles that we're seeing. And I was questioning why they didn't think that someone that grew up on the island, especially women on the island, someone who has actually lived and worked through that, would have had family in and out of prison. Why aren't those skills thought of as being adequate to do the job? Why is someone that's gone to university somewhere and then flies up onto a remote community thought to have better skills. Is there a reason for that or is it just the way things have been done? I'd say it's unconscious bias. <laughs> How do you go about changing that then? Presumably you're talking about changing quite a mindset within an culture. already established culture, yeah. Yeah, that's where the project takes a different turn for me. Cultural change, as we know, is probably one of the hardest things to do. People get used to doing something in a particular way. End of last year, I started managing a community legal centre. It made me realise that the scope of my project is much broader. I am trying to make cultural change around this specific project, but there's broader cultural change that needs to be made for something like this to even be Can contemplated. I, are you trying to change this culture where it pertains to on-country as opposed to in the cities? Oh, everywhere. So someone's work that they do affects Aboriginal people on the ground. What skills and knowledge do they have? which means that they can do that job better than someone else. What do you want to see as a result of this project? How will you measure impact? Essentially, it's about changing the way we recruit, changing the way that position descriptions are written. Just define it a little bit more so there's skills in there, knowledge in there around culture. If there's a doctor or a lawyer, then they have a particular set of skills that they need to do their job and they're written up in that position description. And so what is it that Aboriginal people possess? Capability frameworks. So what skills do you need? when you come into the organisation to support Aboriginal people. Do you have those or do you not? And all Aboriginal people have different lived experiences as well. But all doctors have different lived experiences and some work better in community and some won't. So it's not saying that writing up PDs means that all Aboriginal people will get that job, but the ones with the skills that are required would get it. You strike me as a very upbeat, optimistic person. <laughs> That's obviously something you bring to your work. So are you optimistic that this is going to change 
in, are we talking five years, 10 years, lifetime? Yeah, you're right. I am optimistic. I think you have to be. And I don't know if this will change. I've spoken to many people about the project and I think it's a great idea. I think that clarity around what those specific skills and knowledge and attributes are is where the challenge lies. And that's where I need to probably focus most of my time. Because if we can clarify and outline those and the next part's easy. What you're saying is, I quote here, the nuances that are gained from life and community experience need to be acknowledged and qualified so as a society we genuinely include and value the knowledge and attributes that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people bring to the workplace. So what you're saying is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can contribute greatly to the traditional workplace as it's known from, you would say, the coloniser point of view. Yep, absolutely. And that isn't appreciated, you think, at the moment? No. But you're confident? that in a period of time, thanks to your project, (laughs) we won't hold you to a specific time frame at the moment, but you're confident that people's minds are open enough and the system is flexible enough to allow this kind of change to happen. Yeah, well, I'm hopeful. Just because we acknowledge and identify those skills doesn't mean that people are going to value them. There is a whole lot of work that organisations need to do around their own cultural change for this to be effective. We've already mentioned unconscious bias and absolutely that's an issue. We all have unconscious bias and we also have conscious bias. There's lots of articles out there to read in regards to recruitment and unconscious bias. But you can't just write up a PD and then people are going to go, oh, okay, now I respect Aboriginal people. Some rhetoric you might hear around Aboriginal employment is that they want to increase the number of Aboriginal staff and that person only got that job because they're Aboriginal. And there's also processes where we can identify roles and you can get an exemption if you want an Aboriginal person to do the role. So there'd be some rhetoric around, well, they only got that because they're black. Some Aboriginal people won't apply for identified roles because of that, which I think is a real shame. So that's a debate that's ongoing within the Aboriginal community too. It's a challenge that's being worked out. I think people don't want to feel they're getting a job not because of their skills but because they're black. So the challenges they face going into the workplace and people thinking that, they prefer just to stay away from it. I think you should be proud that you're Aboriginal and absolutely if there's a job that an Aboriginal person should do, then you should be proud to apply for that. So it's a real shame that some people aren't proud to do that. Actually, I'm going to apply for a job that isn't targeted for Aboriginal people so I can prove that I have the skills to do a job and it's not because I'm Aboriginal. Hopefully, if we can identify those skills, knowledge and attributes, that we don't even need to identify a role anymore because they're written in there and if you have those skills and knowledge, then you would get the job, not because you're Aboriginal but because of the skills you have. You've joined now the Atlantic Fellows community and the programme of which you're a fellow here in Melbourne, the Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity, is one of seven global programmes around the world. Do you see yourself as part of that wider community? Do you see that that community may have benefits for you that you could learn from? Absolutely. In what way? When I first heard about this programme, I was really excited. And now what excites me is being part of global change makers. I really see the Atlantic Fellows for me as a change maker, not just my project. It's probably brought out that I am really interested in making social change. I knew that, but being part of the program really went, wow, actually that's where my passions lie. Because in a sense, before you were very inward focused on what's happening with your community. I think I was always interested in injustices. I've experienced a lot of disadvantage. I've also experienced a lot of privilege. But if I look at my parents' life experiences and mine, It's changed. For the better. Well, yes. They experience racism to a different level than I did. And if I can help change it again so that my nieces and the younger ones coming through have a better experience than me, then that's great. And that's part of social change. So I'm excited to see however many people we end up being, how together we can make a better world. That's really exciting. 
We'll leave it at that then, Nicole <laughs> Jenkins. Thank you very much and good luck. Thanks. That was Nicole Jenkins, Atlantic Fellow for Social Equity. For more information, you can visit www.atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to the Atlantic Conversations podcast.